Well, good morning. Good morning. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. And uh, just want to uh, let you know we've been in the book of Acts. Uh, we just started this a couple weeks ago. So this is week three. It's our series that's going to kind of lead us up to Easter. It's called the book of Acts, the church on the move. And just to give you a quick recap of what we've talked about so far over these uh, couple weeks. Uh, the first week we saw Jesus giving his final instructions to the apostles before his ascension. And he was telling them that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then uh, last week, we, we saw kind of the start where the apostles were waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they, they were not just idle as they were waiting either. They were in prayer with one another together. And they also replaced Judas uh, Iscariot as an apostle. And it was the time of Pentecost. Pentecost was a pilgrimage festival celebrating the end of the harvest. And the Holy Spirit came to the room they were in, this upper room they were in. There were uh, likely 120 or so people there. And the Holy Spirit comes and it sounds like a mighty wind. And, and tongues of fire appear over everybody's head, this amazing scene. And they start to speak in different languages. And a lot of the people heard the commotion and were kind of curious what was going on. So they come and they hear the wonders of God being proclaimed to them in their own language, in their own dialect. And there were two responses that they gave. The first one was people were amazed and perplexed. And they asked a question. They were basically just like, what does this mean? Then the second one, a little different. You know, they, they made fun of them, the scripture says, and says, well, they had too much wine. They were drunk, pretty much what they were saying. And that's going to get us into today's message as we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. And when I was thinking about this, I, I got to thinking about the movie Inception. If you've ever seen the movie Inception, it's, it's, a, it's a heist movie. It's a wonderful movie. I love it. And it's a heist movie where they go into people's dreams and, and steal things from people's dreams and stuff. But the, the fun part is, you know, sometimes you have dreams within a dream. Well, we're going to have a sermon within a sermon because that's what this is. Peter is preaching a sermon here. And uh, he, he preaches in what looks like three different sections because as we know, sermons have three points in a poem. Um, maybe that's just, you know, preachers know that. But if you ever notice, sometimes there's three points in a poem. Uh, I'm not quite as old school as that, though, so you don't hardly ever get any points actually told to you. <laughs> but occasionally you do get a poem. Not today, though. Anyway, first, first section here, Peter talks about what happened. Because he's, he's got to explain what happened to draw all this attention to them. So in Acts 2, verse 14, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a fire way to start a sermon. <laughs> Peter explains what's happening, why, what is drawing all of this attention. And he's a, the, the people he's addressing are Jewish people. They are, he says, you know, to my fellow Jews, to those who live in Jerusalem. And remember, this is kind of the first part of Jesus' command here, to go into Jerusalem to start. And so that's what they're doing. And the faith really doesn't get moved to Gentile or non-Jewish people until Acts chapter 10. Um, which we're actually not going to get to in this sermon series, but it's when Peter goes and visits a man named Cornelius. I think it's Cornelius. Um, he says, Peter says here, he's like, listen carefully to what I have to say, and then he's answering the accusation that they were drunk, which he's like, they're not drunk. That's silly. It's only nine in the morning. There is some humor here. Like, he is actually using some humor. Because Jewish people wouldn't eat or drink, before 9 a.m. on the day of the Sabbath, or any holy day, really, which Pentecost was. Plus, it's 9 in the morning. I don't think they're going to be drinking much anyway. And they wouldn't drink wine outside of meals. So then he goes on to talk about what happened. And to do this, he's quoting the, the prophet Joel from the Old Testament in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And that's kind of a lengthy passage, which you don't always get like full passages of Scripture quoted in the New Testament. You get snippets at times, but this is a pretty full passage here. And a lot of this is pointing to the coming day of the Lord, right? And so Peter is led by the Spirit to say that this prophecy that he's talking about from Joel is applying to the church. And he's, it's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's the big thing that he really wants to focus on at the start, right? And it's because that's the reason for all the commotion. That's the reason for what's happening. And in connection to that, they, they could look forward to the things that Joel talks about with the Spirit coming, that God's servants would prophesy. A prophecy is defined as an oral or divine message mediated through an individual that is directed at a person or a people group and intended to elicit a specific response. Prophecies could be predictive. You know, that's a lot of times what we think of when we think of prophecy. It's like the telling of the future kind of thing. But it could also be an admonition. And an admonition is basically just confronting somebody about their lifestyle, their behavior, and, and seeking change. But whichever it is, it is always led by God's Spirit through the person. Now, Joel says that young men will also see visions. And we're going to see that later, actually, in the book of Acts. And... We see it with Ananias and Paul following Paul's conversion. And we see it with Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and Peter. They both had visions from God. Also, the, the prophet Joel talks about old men who would dream dreams. And that, that's not specifically mentioned in Acts, although some of these visions do come at night, so they might have been dreams, but we're not real sure. But Joel shifts then to talk about the wonders in heavens above and the signs on the earth below that God is going to show in the last days, on the day of the Lord. And it's blood and fire and billows of smoke. And the sun is going to turn to darkness, the moon to blood. And it is, he's talking about the coming day of the Lord. He's not talking about like an immediate thing that's going to happen right then when, when the Holy Spirit came. Of course, it was going to be close. It's closer to the end. Um, but the biggest thing, I think, aside from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, I think the biggest thing is the very last line in this part here where he says, 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter could have left that part out. He could have left all of that out. He could have said, this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit from the prophet Joel and been done with it. But he didn't. He, he went through this whole thing where he talked about all of the coming signs, wonders, and, and calamity, really, it seems, in the day of the Lord. But then there's that hope at the end of it, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You want to escape all the scary stuff? Call on the name of the Lord. Because no one can presume that they would be automatically counted among the saved. For Peter, the Lord here is Jesus Christ. Everything that follows in his sermon is pointing to that truth. And that's kind of what we talk about next. So we see what happened. And that's the Spirit is poured out. That's, that's what happened to draw all this attention. Now, we're going to look at how it happened. We're going to kind of get the explanation for it, and it's all focused on Jesus. It's Jesus as Lord. Paul, Peter, sorry, Peter offers four proofs that Jesus is indeed Lord. The first of these proofs is that it's, it's really just in the person of Jesus himself, of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter starts by talking about Jesus and his work during his ministry. Jesus performed many miracles and wonders and signs, and he says they knew this too, because none of this was done in some corner with nobody watching, right? It was done in public. They had probably seen some or maybe have heard about the miracles Ministry was not done in the vacuum, right? They saw, they probably talked about it, and they would have seen things that had not been done before. There were a whole lot of messianic people who they thought they were the Messiah, but they wouldn't have done anything like Christ would have been able to do. But it's not just this. It's God's plan was that Jesus was going to be handed over and put to death by crucifixion, which is a brutal way to kill someone. But not only that. God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. Why would it be impossible? Because Jesus had the authority over his life and death. John 10 verse 17 says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And again, none of these things happened in a vacuum, right? There were probably stories going around that all the disciples stole his body or something like that. But the apostles, they're witnesses to his resurrection. They're following his command to be his witnesses. If they had just stolen the body, they would have no authority, no power to do anything. That's the first thing is the person of Jesus. That, that offers proof. The second thing is there's a prophecy from David that he quotes. 
Verse 25 says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, this is a quote from the Psalms, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And David says in this, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, most people would read this and say, well, David's talking about himself. But there's one tiny little problem with that. David died, and he was buried in Jerusalem. And it's clearly stated in 1 Kings chapter 2 that David died and was buried. There's no resurrection of David. And they probably knew where his tomb was. I mean, there's a tomb there now that they think is David's tomb. But they, they, at the time, they probably knew where it was. I mean, he was a real person, though, and he died. And that's Peter's argument. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So Jesus is the one who is descended from the line of David. Luke's own gospel talks about this in the genealogy. There's also one in Matthew. They both go from the line of David. Peter says David's not talking about himself, but the Messiah king who would one day be on the throne, one of his descendants. It was a promise from God that one of David's descendants would be on the throne forever. Now, this would have been a pretty big assertion for any Israelite that was listening to this because David was such an important figure in Jewish history and with their people. So to assert this, that could have gone good or bad. Like, it could have gone very, very good or very poorly. But Peter doesn't stop there because he continues with another proof, and that is the witness of the believers, those who are there teaching these things. Those who are there who have the Spirit come on them. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Now, at the moment, that may not be the best proof for them, but there are 120 of them, and they're all telling the same story. And nowadays, the witnesses of the apostles, that's huge. Because all Of the 11, all but one of them died by being killed for their faith. John was the only one that wasn't, and he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Ten of them were killed, and most of those were brutally and horrifically killed. So if this was a lie, when they're facing that kind of persecution and death, why would they hold to that story? But they didn't. Well, they did. They, they held to the story. And they died for it. And so the witness of the apostles, maybe not super big then, but definitely a good thing now. 
And then we go to the fourth proof, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. So earlier in this series, we talked about how Jesus had to go back to heaven before the Spirit could come. John 16, 7, he said, Truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so now Jesus has ascended into heaven. We saw that first week. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he's received that promised Holy Spirit, which he in turn pours out onto his believers, onto those followers. The disciples have the proof that the Spirit is here. The proof continues along throughout the rest of Acts with some amazing things that we're going to see as we continue through this series. The passage from Acts 2 also quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, where David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Peter's argument here, same thing, kind of. It wasn't David that ascended to heaven. This is a prophecy for Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection is so important. It's the explanation for everything that's going on with the apostles. So now we move on to why this happened. What's the application for people? Acts 2, verse 36. Peter continues, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter lays out everything right here at the end. He sums up what he's arguing. He's like, Jesus is the Messiah. You crucified him. You missed it while he was here. Don't miss it now. Because you've got another chance, you've got an opportunity, don't let it pass by. And so the hearers, they respond, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Repent and be baptized. To repent means that you're turning away from your sinful life. And you're turning toward the Lord. It's radically changing direction. It's like you're going one way, you do a 180 and all of a sudden you're going the other way. It's... it's being baptized as well. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith, of following Christ. It's joining him in his death and resurrection into a new life, symbolized by the beautiful image of being buried under the water and being raised into a new life. And so repent and be baptized, all in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise, Peter says, not just for you, but for all generations. 
for all people whom the Lord will call to himself. It continues in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a pretty effective sermon. 3,000 people. I don't even know what I would do if 3,000 people showed up. <laughs> I'm like, we need a, we need a bigger room. <laughs> All of this is focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without it, what do we have? That's where our hope lies. It's in Christ and his resurrection, and that's what we preach. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 says, But if it's preached, Paul writes this, he's like, If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we've been found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But... He didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. <laughs> Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. That's what they were witnessing to then. It's still what we witness to today, even though we're not direct eyewitnesses to it. But that's the gospel message. That Jesus Christ lived the sinless life and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and was raised to life again. The gospel, that's the gospel, right? And the gospel requires a response. Like you cannot be neutral. You either accept it or you don't. You cannot be neutral with it. And it forces us to ask the same question, what shall we do? And the answer is still the same. It's repent and be baptized. Turn away from that sinful life you've been living, the life that you're living apart from God, and turn toward him and following him. And he's waiting for you to do that. It's like the prodigal son, the, the parable of the prodigal son, the story Jesus tells of a, a son who, who basically disowns his father, and he runs from him, and he wastes his life and his money and his inheritance. He wastes it. And then he comes to his senses and he turns to go home, not to be a son anymore, to be, to be a servant to his father because he knows his servants will be taken care of. But his father is there waiting and looking and watching always for him. And when he sees him, he runs to him, which is not something that they would do. And he runs to him and embraces him and, and invites him back to his family as a son. And that's what God is waiting to do for us. He is waiting, and we don't have to. He doesn't have to run to us because as soon as we turn around, he's there, ready to embrace you. Repent, be baptized, publicly declare your faith through baptism. You know, all we need is a couple days' notice. We'll have that baptismal fill for you, and it'll be ready to go. The gospel requires a response even from us who have been following Jesus for decades, because we've got to remind ourselves of the gospel so that we can remember what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. Because we can drift, right? We can lose focus. 
But the gospel, Christ, that's our North Star. Christ is who we keep focusing on so we don't drift. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus while you're running the marathon race that is life. Let everything else fade away. All, that un- all the unimportant stuff, let that go. But let Jesus be the beacon that we run toward every day. Peter said that they lived in a corrupt generation. It seems like we don't have it that much better today. And it's not getting any better. But that's all the more reason that we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, Lord, we are so thankful that even though we are sinners, even though we crucified your Son, that you put a plan in place to rescue us so that we can be reconciled to you, that you would save us from our sins through your Son, Jesus, who went to the cross for us. And Lord, I I pray that those here who know that message, the, the, the many number of us here today that have accepted and followed your son Jesus, that we are just reminded of it today. That we let it be that north star to fix our eyes on. That we let him be that north star to fix our eyes on so that we can run the race without drifting. We are so thankful for that, Lord. And Lord, we pray for those here today that may not, or may be watching, that may not have made that decision to follow you. And we pray that they would, that they would repent, that they would be baptized, and that they would be welcomed in as one of your own. Because that's what you are waiting for. Thank you so much, Lord. As we come around the table for communion, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Do we take the the bread that will represent his body that was broken? We take the juice representing his blood that was spilled on that horrible device. But for the joy set before him, he endured it because he knew what was coming. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.